Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Women Scholars and Professionals podcast. My name is Anne Boyd, and I'll be your host. We at Women Scholars and Professionals are here to support women in their God-given callings into the university and beyond. So, if you're a graduate student or a faculty member, an administrator or a student in professional school, a scholar in between jobs, or simply a person who supports women in the academic world, then this podcast is for you. Let me invite you into a conversation with Dr. Beth Allison Barr, history professor and author of The Making of Biblical Womanhood, How the Subjugation of Women Became Gospel Truth. This book has deeply impacted the conversation around gender roles in the church since its publication in April of 2021. I was thrilled to interview Beth so I could ask her just a few of the many questions that came up for me as I read her powerful book. In our conversation, Beth explores the terrain between her personal experience and her historical research, and she talks about her journey toward sharing her findings with the wider world, and then the fallout that came along with that choice. Beth talks candidly about her experience as a tenured professor and offers generous advice and encouragement for other women who hope to find their way in academia. She is a warm and gracious conversation partner, full of wisdom and knowledge and laughter too, and I think you'll enjoy this interview. So let me tell you a little bit more about her. Dr. Beth Allison Barr is the James Vardaman Professor of History at Baylor University in Waco, Texas, where she specializes in medieval history, women's history, and church history. She recently served as president of the Conference on Faith and History from 2018 to 2021 and is an active supporter of Christians for Biblical Equality. Dr. Barr has written for Christianity Today, The Washington Post, Religion News Service, The Dallas Morning News, Sojourners, and Baptist News Global. Her work has been featured by NPR and The New Yorker. And she is also a Baptist pastor's wife and the mom of two great kids. So let's dive right in. We're so glad you're here with us. Thank you for being here with us, Beth, and I want to talk to you about the making of biblical womanhood, certainly, but first I'd love to hear about your life as a professor. Our our listeners are mostly women who are connected with academic life in one way or another, so I'm curious to hear more about your journey, and can you just tell us a little bit about your path into academia? Sure. So, um, you know, I tell people I didn't, when I went to college, my goal was actually to be a journalist. Uh, So that's something way back in my, my, my history, I suppose. And my first semester, I took a history class. And I also sat in on an upper level journalism class. And I realized that the what I wanted to do was to tell the story tell people stories Mm. and that I could do that as a historian and not have the deadline pressure as a journalist. And so I actually very early on switched to history still with the intent of going into professional writing. Mm -hmm. Um, And during my undergraduate career, I realized that I really loved teaching and I really loved writing too. And so the best thing 
you know, I could do both of those things together in academia. Um, and I also realized that even if I went the route of professional writing, that getting a PhD was still a good idea um, because it gave me that uh, that training as right. well as the credentials. Um, so even when I went into graduate school, even though I wanted to be a professor, I didn't have all of my life staked on being a professor. I always sort of was like, you know what, if it doesn't, if that doesn't work out, then I can go this way. Um, and in my PhD will still be really valuable. So I kind of always held it uh, loosely. And so it's really amazing that it worked out for me to right. actually be, uh, you know, to be a professor at a place that I absolutely love. Um, so I've been so excited that that has worked out for me, but I didn't, it wasn't my, it wasn't my only dream, mm. um, which is also wonderful because really I've gotten both of my dreams. Um, I've gotten to become a professional writer as well as be a professor. So I'm really grateful for how my academic journey worked out. And I'm also understand that um, that I got I got hit some lucky breaks. It wasn't just about something successful that I did. That there was a lot of lucky breaks for me along the way that helped me connect with the right people at the right time that allowed me to move into this. And so I'm I'm also very um, I have a lot of humility that I there's a lot of wonderful people out there who are brilliant and great writers and great teachers who didn't hit those lucky moments. Right. Um, so I also, you know, I, I try to be very realistic and realize that it's not, it's not just me being successful, it's um, circumstances in my life that also helped out. Well, that, I mean, that's a very humble way to think about it. And it, I mean, that also sounds like your ability to hold it loosely probably helped you to reach out in different ways or um, maybe make connections or look for opportunities yes. that you wouldn't normally. You yeah, know. It, it did. It made me. Um, open to think about public writing earlier on in my career. You know, I think there's a lot of academics who, especially when they're on tenure track or they're trying to get a job, they're like, I don't have time to do any of this public intellectual stuff because all I have to do is, you know, I just need to publish my articles right. so that I can move forward. And what they don't realize is that that's not always the best path, um, that sometimes diversifying who you are. Um, and I also think that academics if we were forced to write more publicly, we would write better mm -hmm. and our work would be more accessible to the public, um, which would also then give us more opportunities. Right. So I, you know, I think maybe because I held it more loosely, it made me be more diverse in the things that I did um, because all my eggs weren't in one basket, if I can use that. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So what have been in your time in academia, um, what have been some joys that you have experienced or some challenges that you'd want to note? Yeah, well, I've, I've talked I've talked publicly about some challenges. You know, I was, um, you know, I got my PhD when I finished my PhD when I was 29 and I was actually, I didn't walk because I was seven months pregnant with my first child. Oh um, and so my first child was born shortly after I had my, um, I got my PhD. And at the time I was actually a lecturer. I was not tenure track. I was an adjunct lecturer. And I remember I had this moment where I was like, 
and my son was about 16 months old and I was sitting in my adjunct office, which had a whole lot of professors in there. You know, we all shared one and I was exhausted because I, he didn't sleep well for a very long time. And so I remember sitting there and one of my colleagues walked in and he had a, you know, he was about the same place I was and he had, he had his book manuscript that he was sending off to a publisher. And I'm like, I can do that. And so, you know, I turned around and sent off my book, my dissertation. I just sent it cold to my top choice press. <laughs> and within three weeks, they contacted me back and said, yeah, we want to do this. And wow. so it was, it was really, I mean, that actually worked out really well. I sent it to the right place. I tell my grad students this all the time. You've got to choose the right press. Mm -hmm. um, and so it takes a lot of homework to choose the right press. But I knew who I wanted to try to get it published with. It was Boydell and Brewer. They were a you know, niche in my area. They had a series that is spit exactly what I did. And I knew some of the people on the editorial board. So I knew their work. So um, so it was, you know, it was one of those things. But I remember being like, you know, yes, this is hard, but at the same time, I have the skills to do this. Right. And so it's like, I, you know, I, I can do this. And so I've kind of always been that way. I remember even when, you know, I, I tell, I haven't ever written about this, but you know, I tell uh, my son just turned 18. So we were kind of sharing these kind of horror stories about what it was like, you know, my husband and I were laughing about some of our early days and my daughter was born when my son was almost six. Um, so I remember very clearly this one afternoon I was on tenure track. It was, I was going up for tenure, I think the next year, no, two years after that. So it was right in the hardest part. And my daughter had colic and she like screamed like in the afternoons from like oh, four gosh. to seven. And I remember I put her, got my son and I said, just just sit with her. And I was trying to cook dinner and my husband was gone. And I actually sat down on my kitchen floor and cried. Oh my God. <laughs> for like 10 minutes because I was just like so exhausted while my daughter screamed in the background and my son tried to entertain her. And so, I mean, you know, it, it's hard. We have these moments. Um, and, you know, and that was a moment actually where I was like, do I really want to do this? Or do I just want to go out on professional writing? I was like, you know, and it was one of those crisis moments in my life where I was like, I, I was like, maybe I want to choose plan my other plan. Um, they weren't plan A and plan B. I always kind of held them together. And so I'm glad I didn't. I'm glad I persevered. Um, but it was hard. It was definitely a challenge having young kids while on tenure track. Yeah. And having a husband who had a high pressure job as a youth pastor in a situation that was growing increasingly difficult for him. Mm -hmm. um, so those things were going on. Um, so I think that was definitely a challenge is doing all of these things. It just, it wasn't easy. Academia is not an easy world for women. Um, and, and it still isn't, it's getting better, but it is still a hard world for women. Yeah. Uh, some of my joys actually is one that I resisted for a long time. And my department kept trying to get me to work with graduate students, even before I was tenured. And I actually refused to do it until I was tenured. I was like, no, I'm not going to take PhD students till after I have tenure. Um, but after I got tenured, I immediately got put on the you know graduate committee, was helping with the PhD. And then I was made graduate program director very pretty early on. I yeah. resisted it. I fought it for a couple of years and finally I, I acquiesced to it. Um, but that opened up something that I never expected. I did not realize how much I loved graduate education mm -hmm. and working with graduate students. And that is just an absolute joy. Um, I, in fact, 
Next week, my second PhD student is um, graduating with her PhD, and it is just such a wonderful moment to get to be on stage with them um, as, as they receive their doctorate and that journey that you do together with them. So that has just been, I'm so grateful that I'm at a place where I can work with graduate students. And so that's a wonderful part of academia um, that I just absolutely love. Let's um, turn now for a minute and talk about your book, yeah. The Making of Biblical Womanhood. This book has received a lot of well-deserved attention since <laughs> its publication, and I loved reading it. You asked oh, so many thought-provoking questions about really important issues for women in the church, and I would love to just touch on some of the main ideas here for listeners who haven't read it yet. So you mentioned just a tiny bit about this a minute ago about how your your husband is a youth pastor. Yeah. And I didn't realize before reading this book how how much of this had been born from your own very personal church struggle. Right. So can you share a little bit about your story? Yeah, yeah. So my husband and I, you know, in fact we just celebrated our 25th wedding anniversary. Congratulations. Um, and so I, I know I, I'm like, I feel so old. <laughs> uh, we were very young when we got married. But um, when we got married, my husband was actually already a youth pastor. He'd been a pastor for a year. And so my entire journey with him has been with him in ministry. Mm -hmm. And his, and, you know, I tell, you know, I tell the story in the book how as I, I was in a medieval studies program with an emphasis on women's history at UNC Chapel Hill, while he was starting his Master's of Divinity at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary, when Paige Patterson was, you know, at his height of power. Wow. And so it was, you know, I, I mean, I remember being in a graduate seminar, while all of the SBC arguments about the Baptist faith and what became the Baptist faith and message 2000 were going down, and they were going down not you know, it was people right around where I was. Right. And so it was, the, there was always this juxtaposition of what I was seeing going on in my Christian world about women. And then what I was learning historically mm -hmm. about women. And, and so this was my, my entire academic experience has been grounded in what has been going on in the evangelical world in regards to women. And what I clearly saw as a hardening a hardening attitude towards women, um, you know, within my very recent lifetime. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, and so that gave me, I think it gave me this perspective that this was, that this is something new. This is something different in what mm -hmm. we see. Mm -hmm. um, but at the time too, you know, my husband and I, we still would have agreed with uh, just because I don't think it occurred to us to think any differently, really, about male-female roles in the church. Right. Um, we also, because of our personalities, it wasn't anything that really ever played out in our marriage. Mm -hmm. um, and it also, we were mostly at churches that held it very loosely. Mm -hmm. um, so it wasn't, you know, especially early on in our marriage, um, we weren't at churches that really pushed against, you know, uh, women teaching or even occasionally women appearing in the pulpit, you know, they would still say as long as they were under male authority. So it wasn't until my husband took a youth ministry role in Waco when I started working at Baylor um, that we really got hit hard with this, um, with these hardening attitudes towards women. And it was gradual. It, uh, you know, it was like our church became 
pushed women out more and more and more over our time there. And so we began to become more and more aware of it. And it hit my husband first. And he was son of, you know, one of those things that I think because I was going through tenure at the time, you know, I had a brand new baby, we had a young child. And so he actually tried to shelter me from mm-hmm. some of what was getting really hard for him for a while. And it caused a lot of stress on him. You know, looking back, he's so much less stressed now um, because he was trying to shelter me, trying to protect me from some of what he knew was going on. Um, And so, but there came a moment where we realized that we could no longer honestly stay at a church that was treating women in a way that we thought was unbiblical and dangerous Mm -hmm. without speaking out against it. And that's kind of what led um, to my husband being fired. Right. And, um, and although I didn't even ever intend to write the making of biblical womanhood at that time, that was what led to circumstances that eventually led to the making of biblical womanhood. Mm-hmm. Well, and reading, you know, your story uh, and, and your description of that experience, along with all of your, your historical research, mm-hmm. I found really powerful you yeah. make such a strong argument that the presence of women in leadership roles has been sanctioned in many periods of history, but yeah. that contemporary evangelical Christians are largely ignorant about yes. this. So can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah. So um, a very recent example, which probably some people um, in your audience will hear, is that there's been all of this buzz. Diana Butler Bass just gave this sermon based on the research of Elizabeth Schrader, who's a graduate student at Duke University about Mary Magdalene. And, you know, it's, it's, fascinating research. And what um, Elizabeth Schrader argues is that in the early biblical textual tradition that Mary Magdalene was intentionally suppressed. Now, I will say that the the jury's still out on this. There's a lot of biblical scholars talking about this, and I'm not a biblical scholar, so I'm kind of watching and listening. Um, But what I find so fascinating is that what Diana Butler Bass emphasized in her sermon was this idea of Magdala, meaning the word Magdala, Mary Magdalene, meaning instead of a place name, actually referencing, um, being a reference to the tower, um, sort of this idea descriptor of Mary Magdalene, like she's the tower of faith. And what's fascinating to me is that that was something that, that was actually pretty common in medieval Christianity. Um, That understanding of Magdala as either a place name, or they often call it, you know, the castle, the castle of Mary Magdalene, the fa- and tying it with her strong faith. This is really common in medieval mm-hmm. sermons. And it's so the responses that I've seen from evangelicals who are like, what? It could mean something else. I have no idea, you know, that I mean, I'm sort of I'm like, yeah, you know, this was actually a really common part of, um, of the Mary Magdalene story for, um, for almost a thousand years of mm-hmm. Christian history and modern evangelicals just have no idea. Yeah. It's so, I mean, it's just those types of things. I mean, it doesn't, um, and, and, you know, the thing with Elizabeth Schrader's argument too, is that she argues that Mary and Martha, that Martha got re- replaced Mary in a couple of key places, um, does nothing to change the Jesus story, does nothing right. at all. But the, the key place is, um, is where I'm trying to remember, is it John 11, 27, I think, um, where Jesus looks at Martha and says, who do you think I am? And she says, you're the Christ. Mm-hmm. And it's a very similar um, statement that Martha says 
that's like what Peter says, where Peter says, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And so we have a male and a female who both make, they're the only ones who recognize Jesus, who he really is. And um, Libby argues, Libby Schrader, uh, she argues that that Martha that that was originally Mary Magdalene who made that statement and that it was her name was replaced with Martha. Um, and what's interesting about that is that early that Tertullian in the early church actually said the same thing, said that Mary Magdalene's the one that makes that profession of faith. And we see in the medieval tradition that Mary Magdalene is not credited with that scripture verse, but is credited with making that a, prof a similar profession of faith. Mm -hmm. um, and so again, this is something that you know, I think as a medieval scholar, I'm like, oh, you know, I don't know about the biblical evidence, but I do know that that tradition was a part of the medieval Christianity, which also, I think, made it much more difficult for the medieval world to erase the significance of Mary Magdalene, right. whereas now it's really easy for us to downplay her and she's just one of the other followers of Jesus whereas in the medieval world she was the apostle to the apostles yeah. um and so you know this just this this type of how much we've forgotten about our past i think has made us more likely to forget women um in our churches today yeah well and you i mean you mentioned you know, biblical scholarship too. And mm -hmm. I really appreciated the way you dig deeply into scripture. And I learned a really a lot about the role of Bible translations yeah. and the way women are viewed and treated yeah. in the church. And as I was reading these sections, I found this, you know, helpful because it all completely makes sense, but also alarming because I value scripture and I've always believed that, you know, no matter what, if it's a reputable translation, if you just have a careful, you know, contextualized mm -hmm. reading, it will yield some proper meanings. Meaning, so what can Christians do to ensure that we're grounded in truth as we study scripture? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, use more than one translation. It's a good idea. You just use more than, I mean, really up until recently, uh, you know, if, if we think about the marketing world, um, I think the mass marketing uh, approach in the U.S. has lent its way to us championing one, you know, we're like, I use the ESV. That's the right. only Bible that I use. You know, Scott McKnight calls it this tribalism about, about what Bible translations we use. And this is a relative, this is a new thing in Christian history. Um, you know, the, the, this regard, the way that we regard um, specific translators. Um, and so there's a whole lot, we could talk all about KJV onlyism. I think it's kind of funny because we have, you know, Protestants who are like, oh no, we're not KJV. You know, why would they ever believe that about KJV onlys? And then we're like, I would only ever use the ESV. If you don't use it, if you don't use the ESV, <laughs> then you're not as, and I'm like, that's the same attitude y'all, you know, you know, it's, it's, so it's interesting how we have developed this tribalism towards Bible translations. So a, a really easy remedy to that is to use more than one translation and to use more than one translation out of, um, you know, different schools of thought. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, I always tell people, I'm like, look and see who your translators are. If they are all, the same color, mostly from the same types of schools who are all friends with each other, maybe also use another translation to go alongside that because you're getting a very small perspective. Um, you know, I also tell people that Bible translations, that the differences in Bible translations are very small. 
Um, you know, even harsh biblical critics like Bart Ehrman um, agree that uh, the changes that we see among the manuscript traditions are actually negligent, you know, they're not significant stuff. It doesn't change the Jesus story, right. um, but it changes, I called in the making a biblical womanhood. I says it changed the little stories that yeah. can have a really significant impact on how we practice our faith, mm -hmm. including um, who we put in the position as, you know, pastor. And I'm laughing because I'm thinking about Al Mohler's article, you know, where he doubled down on the Baptist faith and message and said, pastor only refers to men, regardless of Gosh. what pastoral office it is. And I'm like, that's sure. You can say the BFM says that, but you cannot expand that beyond your own history. Right. Um, and so, you know, anyway, so so just for to be really practical, could you yeah. suggest a few that are across the spectrum? Yeah, or? sure. So, um, you know, the ESV, I always tell people, don't go burn Bibles. Um, the ESV <laughs> is mostly the RSV. Um, it's like okay. 90, 95 percent the RSV, the Revised Standard Version, um, which is a very good translation. Um, and so the ESV is still mostly a very good translation. It's just the things that it changes are really significant about women. Mm -hmm. So um, so use it with maybe the NRSV, the new Revised Standard Version of the Bible. Um, and because they will they were the NRSV is translated by people who are mostly um, supportive of women in ministry, not all of them, but mostly supportive of women in ministry, um, come from different theological backgrounds. They're not all reflecting a very small reformed um, complementarian tradition, which is mostly the people with the ESV. Mm -hmm. um, so what I reference a more diverse. Um, so the NRSV is a good one to use with. Um, I also, you know, actually for me, I use the KJV all the time because it's my cheat for the, for the medieval Bible, for mm. the Vulgate. And so it's a very close, so it's my cheat for the Latin Vulgate. Um, so I use the KJV, I use the NRSV, I use the ESV, I use the NIV. I grew up on the NIV. I love the NIV. So I use the NIV, the TN, usually I use the NIV 2012 or my old TNIV because I still love it. Mm -hmm. um, so I think these are all, I know a lot of people use the CEB. Um, I think it's a great translation too. I don't, I just don't know very much about it because mm -hmm. I've never used it that much. Um, but I know that's an also another one. So, I mean, I would, uh, you know, an old Bible, an old fad, like in the eighties was the parallel Bible that gave different side by side. And I'm like, I wish that yeah. fad would come back because right. that was a really good, you know, to, to be able to compare them across the board and see what the differences are. Um, so those are a few, I think I would also recommend and this is harder because there's fewer um, English Bible translations that have a diverse perspective, people, people of color. But if you can bring in like, you know, African um, Bible translations um, and, at, you know, if we can bring in translators that reflect strong Christian faiths that are non-Western, mm -hmm. that is also very helpful um, yeah. because most of the modern English Bible translations reflect a Western perspective. I know that InterVarsity Press recently came out with uh, a Native American yes, and Indigenous. That's a great Bible. one. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's, that's a great one to use. And I mean, it just opens your eyes how much our own culture matters when we read scripture. I want to talk for a minute about patriarchy because yeah. this notion of patriarchy and Christian patriarchy comes up a lot 
-hmm. throughout the book and you explain these ideas in a really helpful way. So I'm wondering, can you just outline some of the contours of this conflict in the church? And in particular, I was really struck by your thoughts on the cost of embracing patriarchy, what, yeah. what we give up. With yeah, no, that's great. So, um, you know, uh, patriarchy is, is pretty easy to define. I mean, it's a big word and people get upset about it all the time, but it simply is, is a word to explain um, the continuity of structures in history, of social structures, governmental structures, economic structures, legal structures, religious structures that place women second to men. Mm -hmm. And so patriarchy, if we sort of you know sum it up, it is social systems that subordinate women to men. Um, where men are always the first class citizen and women always come after. Um, so that's pretty much it. And so it's, you know, I, I'm a social historian. So mm -hmm. I, in the making a biblical womanhood used economics to help explain this, like the wage gap. It's a great way to think yeah. about, you know, there is no reason for women who are trained exactly like men to make less than men do, but they do. Mm -hmm. This is patriarchy. This is this social system um, that all that, the, you know, it's a, it's not telling us why it happens. It's just explaining that it does happen. Yeah. And so I think a lot of people get confused about that, that, you know, patriarchy is not the enemy. It's the, it's what's going on. Mm -hmm. And so what we've got to do is figure out why it's going on. Um, and so my, in the making of biblical womanhood, what I argued is that what Christians were doing by subordinating women to men um, is just continuing this human tradition of patriarchy, uh, same song, different verse, um, but we give it a religious spin. And so, um, and I also showed how in the, you know, making a biblical womanhood, how our religious spin has shifted over time that in the past it used to be because women were inferior to men, their bodies were inferior, but after the reformation, women are seen as equal to God, to men. So therefore that's no longer the reason. Now we come up with this idea of, oh, God ordained women. Right. You know, they're equal, but God ordained them to always be under. Um, and so that's our new explanation of it. Mm -hmm. um, so I think the cost, you know, the cost for patriarchy is not just for women. I mean, I, this all yeah. the time, I, I think you know, historians have noted that patriarchy rewards, it doesn't reward all men. It only rewards some men. It only rewards the men who are in the top of the, you know, sort of totem pole of this. Um, whereas the other men, you know, that are deemed because they are, we see this with these arguments about Christian masculinity, they aren't deemed to be masculine enough. Right. They aren't deemed to have this, you know, they are often um, also pushed down because they don't exemplify what is seen to be as the ideal image of Christian manliness. Mm -hmm. um, so it hurts men who don't fit that, who aren't what we call alpha males. Um, and, you know, the, and, and so you can think about the, and, I work with teenagers for so much of my life and the impact that it had on young men. I mean, I think about the, even the eating disorders faced yeah. among young men because of these images of this ideal masculinity that they thought and, and the young boys who were so shy and did not have a leadership bone in their body, but were being told that to be a godly man, that they had to become, you know, these, these, um, you know, these leaders, mm -hmm. um, and, and the, they were just not wired that way. And so it, the psychological impact that this has on men, I think is really 
significant. Um, I also think the psychological impact that it has on young boys when we teach them that there is something about the way God made them that makes them better than women is so dangerous. Yeah. I mean, it's just, we think about the, we think about all of the abuse that we see in the church and I'm just like, I, these ideas are connected. I mean, you don't treat people. You, the reason they treat women like this is because they have bought into this idea that they can. Yeah. And Christianity has buttressed, buttressed that idea. Mm-hmm. And it's just so, so dangerous. Um, and it warps our young men as well. And, and, you know, and pushes them off the track of, you know, what they could have been when they buy into these dangerous ideas of masculinity and um, domination. Yeah. Um, that just don't look anything like Jesus. You know, I just, <laughs> I mean, they don't, they don't right. look anything like Jesus. And you talk in your book about um, your own personal experience yeah. with abuse, you know, yeah. in, in response to this climate. Yes. Yeah. And I, you know, um, it was, a. I I made two really hard decisions when I wrote The Making of Biblical Womanhood. Um, the first one was even to write the book at all. Yeah. That was actually a big leap for me. Um, the second one was to include my personal experience. And when I originally conceived of the book, I was not going to do as much as I did. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, I realized as I began writing it that in some ways I was just parroting what other people said. Um, there's so much scholarship out there that said all the same things that I was saying and, but people aren't reading it. And yeah. so I was like, I've got to get them to listen. And that was when I decided to give my testimony, which is what I did in the making of biblical womanhood. I gave my testimony. Um, and so that was when I made that decision to put that in. It was sort of a, a last ditch plea. Um, you know, it's not my evidence. My evidence is the history, right. but my testimony is to, is to make it in the language that evangelicals hear. Yeah. And so that's what, and, it, and that seemed to have been a good decision. <laughs> yeah. Well, so. first, I mean, I don't, I mean, my husband is a historian, a historian, but yeah. I'm not. <laughs> and so reading your book, I was so drawn in by your yeah. personal story that it gave me a hunger to learn mm-hmm. more about the history and you it's woven all throughout the book and then really becomes a call to action in right. a powerful yeah. way. Yeah. I, I think that's why I triggered so much anger against the book is because, you know, I mean, when I originally conceived of the book too, I wasn't planning a call to action in the final chapter. Um, my final chapter was like remaking biblical womanhood or something like that. And when I got to the end, I was like, that's not what I want to do. Um, we've got to stop this. I mean, that was really what I was like, we've got to stop it. And so I wrote really, really in like two days, I changed the final chapter and wrote a draft of what became this call to action. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and I think that's what, you know, has really gotten me in so much trouble, um, is because I was like, we don't, it's time to stop talking about this and just start changing this. Yeah. Um, So yeah, but that was a last minute decision to do that. And I love the way, I mean, I was talking with, um, my colleague at the well, Andrea, um, who edits the well, and she was saying how, how much she appreciates the way you have taken scholarship 
and then put legs on it. You know, they're just, it's, um, I think in, in academia, it can often happen where people, you know, you, you do your scholarship, you do your work, you're, you know, enmeshed in these ideas, but then it doesn't connect with the rest of your life, but you have really built a bridge or a road or something for that to, to be connected just conceptually with history, which I think is beautiful. Well, thank you. Um, I, I think maybe part of it is, is because the reason I got into history and the things I'm interested in history are because of my life. Mm -hmm. And so I think that connection was always there and always walked together. Um, And so it was really hard. And and, I mean, and I teach what we call his, we call historiography, historical methodology. And one of the wonderful things about learning how to teach history was getting past this idea that historians are supposed to approach the past completely objectively because we realize that's false. You can't do that. So either you lie about it and say, I'm looking at this with no, you know, with not bringing anything to the text, or you're just upfront about it. And you say, this is who I am. And this is why I see the text this way. And it allows me to have a different perspective than somebody who sees it, you know, because they're different. And if we bring all these perspectives together, we get a better understanding of what actually the past was. And so this, I think, I was just enough in this new training, you know, we call it the new cultural history um, of scholarship to be like, I can embrace who I am and how I see history because my perspective on history is important. Yeah. And so I think that gave me a little bit, you know, that I knew historical methodology was also on my side. Mm-hmm. Well, I love it. And um, and it's a, it's a, I think it's a great segue to um, our next topic, which is looking at women in academic and professional context yeah, and how they can that. use this book, right? Yeah. So most of our listeners are women who are working or studying in academia mm-hmm. or professional spaces, and they maybe attend churches that hold differing views about mm-hmm. women in leadership. Some listeners are connected with Christian colleges. Yeah. So I know that um, you say in the book that you're not a practical theologian, you're a historian, but (laughs) (laughs) how can we bring up these ideas and these questions in a meaningful and productive way, especially in contexts where complementarianism is valued? Oh gosh, yes. So, you know, I have, I, I am, I've always been blessed. I mean, I've sort of realized what makes Baylor a unique place. There's so many things about it. And one of them is that um, even though that there's a lot of differing ideas here, um, we have people here who are very, what I would call complementarian. Some of the major churches in Waco are still complementarian. Um, but yet at Baylor, we also have very clearly invested in female leadership, mm-hmm. like our president and our provost right now are both women. Yeah. And, and this, and so it's been this, it's allowed me to kind of see how these ideas play out um, in academic, in the academic world. And I think, you know, all women in academia or most women in academia, you know, have these stories where we're sitting in a room and we realize that no one is listening to us. You know, I actually had one of those not too long ago at Baylor. And, um, and it was this, it's this shocking thing when you're like, wait, that's what I did. That's what I said. But this man has now said it and everybody is turning to him and he, and you're like, you're sort of in shock. Cause you're like, is this really happening? 
is nobody listening to me because of this? And so it's this, you know, I think it can be this jarring thing for women. And often because women, we think maybe we've imagined it. We think right. maybe we're being overly sensitive. We think maybe we're alone. And so we just shut up and we just, you know, move on and try to put it behind us. And what I hope women in these spaces will do is to not shut up. Um, you know, that's one of the things that think, I mean, in fact, I actually, in that meeting, I stopped and I said, you know, actually I'm the one in charge of this. And, you know, and I read and the, the, it was good for you. Yeah. Well, you know, I tell people I'm a very mild mannered person, but <laughs> there are moments when I'm just like this, we're not going to do this anymore. Mm -hmm. Um, and you stop and when you draw attention to it, and I know sometimes that can be hard for some women to do. Um, but at the same time, I think it's really important to let men see what they are doing in real time. Mm -hmm. And I think, I mean, if you draw attention and say, Hey, you, that's actually me, that person is not in charge of the project. I'm in charge of the project. So why don't you ask me about it? Mm -hmm. Um, and, and that sometimes can jar them and they realize, I think, I think, you know, and that's actually what I was trying to do with the making of biblical womanhood. I wasn't trying to get everybody to agree with me, although that would be wonderful, but it's not going to yes. happen. <laughs> I was trying to disrupt, you know, mm -hmm. I was for a moment, just be like, stop see what you're doing. Mm -hmm. You know, maybe there's another way to see this. And I think women in academia need to do that too. We need to get people to stop and be like, wait, oh, so you are saying seriously that even though I am scheduled to have a C-section in six weeks, that you want me to keep teaching full-time while having major surgery and be back in the classroom in two weeks and still stay on the same tenure clock as everybody else. Oh, really? That's what you're asking me to do. You know, I mean, I think we need to stop and be like, this isn't, um, we need to let people see the impact that this has on women. Um, and I think women too, because I think, you know, I've actually seen this a lot from older female academics who are like, well, I gave birth and two days later, I was back in the classroom oh, teaching gosh. five classes and I still got <laughs> tenure. And you're like, well, that really was hard. Why are you making somebody else do that? Right. You know? I mean, it's like, just because you had a horrible past mm -hmm. doesn't mean that we should keep making women have a horrible, um, horrible experience. Um, so I think also women too, being like, you know, being like, let's make it better for the next generation. Yeah. Just because I was pumping milk in my car, which is what I did to um, feed my babies mm -hmm. um, because I didn't have a private office and there were no places to breastfeed on campus. Um, that doesn't mean other women that I want women now to have to have that experience because it was horrible. Yeah. Um, so let's make it better. So I think even that, you know, those types of things, it's like it, maybe it didn't help you. You can't help you, but can we help the women who are coming up behind us? Um, you know, let's make tenure less stressful for them while they're having babies, which is really hard and is more, you know, it's harder on women's bodies. And I mean, we know I mean, it's a really hard thing. Like, do we give parental leave to men and all of these things? And I'm like, yes, because men need to be caretakers of babies too, but we also need to 
recognize that when men get parental leave, they publish more articles. Whereas when women get parental <laughs> leave, they spend all the time nursing the baby and sleeping and trying to recover their poor bodies that have just been through this major ordeal. Yeah. And so we've got to recognize that. Yeah. And we've got to allow women to have time to catch up. Oh, you got me on a soapbox. <laughs> it's good. It's good. Well, and even <laughs> suddenly I was like, well, I'm preaching here. I got to stop. It's, it's just what we need. It's what we need to hear. And the other, th I mean, and toward the beginning of um, your, your ideas on this, I appreciated that you acknowledge that, you know, if we stand up and point this out, it's possible that things aren't going to change right, right away, but that there is benefit in continuing yes. to point, continuing to point. Yes. Yeah. And, and we, I mean, you know, I think some women, because we have been culturally, you know, we have been taught to not be visible, to not draw attention to ourselves. And, you know, when we speak up and are assertive, then often people say, you know, call, say not so nice words about us sure. because we're women and we're not supposed to be that assertive. But at the same time, it does, I think it disrupts. I think when people realize what they're doing, that they're excluding somebody from a conversation when it is happening. You know, if you say after the fact, then people, oh, like, no, no, we didn't do that. Or no, you had plenty of opportunities. You just chose not to. Right. So if we catch them, you know, it's like catching your child in the act. Yes. It has a different, it may not change their behavior at the moment, but it makes them think. Yeah. And it makes other people around them think. I mean, you still do it in a kind way because I think most people don't do it intentionally. Mm -hmm. It's that unintentional. It's the way that we have been cultured and men have been coming from complementarian spaces have been taught that women's voices don't matter as much. Yes. And so it's no surprise that that plays out in Christian workspaces. Um, so anyway, so just getting them to stop and yeah. think about it can yeah. be helpful. It's important. One uh, I have I have a question I wanted to ask you, and it's yeah. I think it can be kind of tricky, but um, it's about churches. I, you know, yeah. many of our listeners, there 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 are frequent moves, and you have to find a church that aligns with at least some of your values. So, do you have any tips on how people can Gosh. approach so, that question? Yeah, yeah. No, this is a hard one. I'll tell you. You know, I. I feel it every day that because I wrote the making of biblical womanhood, that I have stymied my husband's career. I know I have. Mm. He, I mean, and he, I mean, he doesn't ever hold it again. He, he did this with me. He knows yeah. this, but there's only a handful of churches in Waco that would probably hire him because wow. of me. And, and that's just the reality of it. Mm. And, um, and it's a horrible reality because, you know, we are, very solid, you know, Bible believing Christians who are very experienced, know what we're doing in ministry, but yet simply because we spoke out on this issue, churches there, you know, there are going to be church that wouldn't even ever consider him mm -hmm. um, or even do any, I mean, it's just, it's just a harsh reality of it. And so I think about if we were trying to choose a church in without, you know, considering his position, if maybe he was doing something else and we were just choosing a church, it'd be really hard for us. And we go right now, there's only a few churches that we would feel comfortable with, um, on some of, you know, on some of these issues. And so, I mean, it would, it would be hard. I, I honestly, I don't know where I would go. 
Mm-hmm. There are some places that I'd visit and I would see, but honestly, I don't know um, if I was trying to choose one. Um, so I think for people, I think you've got to go into it with eyes wide open that the church is in a place where it needs to change. And so we're not going to find a perfect church. Very few places are you really going to find a church that aligns with everything that you value. So you do got to make choices. But I think you need, if you make those choices, you need to let people know. Again, don't keep it a secret. Be like, I'm going to join this church. There's so many things I love about it, but I find this really problematic and I'm not going to be quiet about this. Yeah. Um, because I think we need to, we need to talk about this. And, and so, I mean, and if more people did things like that, then churches would be forced to talk about them. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, they just would. I mean, I know that I've been in ministry when enough people in a congregation are like, we got to talk about this. The church has to talk about it. So we could, you could force the issue on some of these things like racial reconciliation and be like, Hey, we are all white. Have you all noticed that, that everyone in our church is white, you know, people of color come here and go really fast. We are doing something wrong. We got to talk about that. So, I mean, if more people did that, I think it would change. Yeah. Um, so that would be my, you know, don't expect perfection. You've got to settle for less because the church is about people and we're all flawed. Right. But it doesn't mean you have to live with that. Um, yeah. We can work for change. There is a steep hill to climb ahead mm-hmm. as we look at the, the future of, of women in leadership in the church. And mm-hmm. we've made some progress, but there's still a lot to do. So how do you maintain hope? Where do you find hope? (laughs) Yeah, I'm the good. I mean, I'm always a hopeful person. I'm just always a hopeful person. And, um, and part of the reason I'm a hopeful person is because I see God and I see God at work in people. And, and I don't, I honestly don't know how, you know, I, I say this very loosely from it's hard to honestly believe in Christianity and not believe that we can be better Mm. Um, because Christianity is about resurrection. It's about new life. It's about the old dying and the new being born. That's the church. And so, I mean, that's the whole story of Christianity is um, from death to life. And so I think as Christians, we've got to believe yeah. because that is what our faith is. Um, and so, I mean, it doesn't mean that we're not discouraged. It doesn't mean there's times that we want to tear our hair out, but at the same time, we've got to realize the problem isn't with God. The problem is with flawed people. And this is why we need Jesus mm-hmm. <laughs> because we mess up all the time. Yeah. And that's why we need Jesus. Um, that's why we don't need to platform ourselves. That's why we don't need to you know, cut all checks and balances on us. Um, even if we're a wonderful preacher, because we are flawed humans and we're going to mess it up every time. Yeah. Um, so we've got to do it together and realize we're going to mess up, but also realize that we can be better. Yeah. So Beth, as we wrap up, I would love to ask about what is next for you? Uh, what, what new projects are you excited about in this next season? 
Yeah. So um, I'm really excited that after I, you know, I had this shift in my academic career where I was a dean while I wrote The Making of Biblical Womanhood, which was just really hard. I don't recommend that. <laughs> um, and because of the success of Making a Biblical Womanhood, I got offered an endowed chair in the history department, which gave me the ability to come back to history and focus on research and teaching, uh, which I, it was a hard decision because I loved being a dean. And I may one day go back and into administration, but for right now, I think um, I think I have some I have some more writing projects that I need to do, and this gives me the space to do that. Mm -hmm. So I um, decided to turn the making of biblical womanhood into a trilogy. You can imagine the making of biblical womanhood is a super you know from a historical perspective, it's a short book. Oh you yeah, know? I mean they gave me seven. What did they give me? They gave me sixty thousand words. It's seventy two thousand words. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Um, which, you know, that was by the skin of my teeth. There was so much more I wanted to sure. talk about. So I'm turning it into a trilogy. And the next book, um, I'm going to tackle female ordination. Wow. As well as the role of pastor's wife. And it's called Becoming the Pastor's Wife. Huh. And I'm really excited about it. It'll pull in my, my life as a pastor's uh -huh. wife, as well as talk about this historical, the rise of the role of the pastor's wife and how this is a historical anomaly and how it is connected to the decline of female ordination. And I'm really excited about telling that story. Um, and then the final book in the trilogy is um, loosely called Losing Our Medieval Religion. And it, where I talk about essentially the cost of forgetting, mm -hmm. um, cost of forgetting medieval history yeah. um, for evangelical Christians. And so where I'm going to talk, and it's not just going to be about women, it's going to talk about women too, but it's going to talk about a lot of things. Uh, and I'm really looking forward. It's going to be a lot of fun. Was there anything else that you would hope to mention or talk about in this podcast that we didn't get to? Um, I think the only thing is I want to encourage all these women in academia that um, their scholarship matters and it matters to reach a public audience. And so um, I encourage them all to give it a, give it a shot try to write your scholarship in a way that more people can hear it um, because women are doing important things that need to be heard. I find Beth Allison Barr's energy and conviction very inspiring, and I especially appreciate the way she honors the contributions of women across the ages, including today and including those of us listening right now. So be encouraged to continue your good work and share it with the world. And for those of you who are looking for a few more tips at the beginning of the school year, you can listen all the way to the end of the credits, where I've included a bonus from our interview in which Beth talks about her best tips for starting the school year well. The Women Scholars and Professionals podcast is hosted by me, Anne Boyd, and is a production of InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. We acknowledge that the opinions of our guests may not necessarily represent the ministry, doctrine, or policies of InterVarsity. You can find more information about our podcast and the other cool things we are doing at thewell.intervarsity.org. Our work is funded solely through the donations of our listeners and supporters. So if you enjoyed this podcast, you might consider joining our support team by donating even $10 per month. You can find out how to do this at our website. To ensure others will find and enjoy our podcasts as well, please consider rating and reviewing our podcast and sharing it with others. 
And as we close, listen in on these words from Beth Allison Barr for the start of a school year. I'm kind of lucky right now because I'm on research leave for the fall. So I'm kind of watching being like, oh, I don't have to write my syllabus right now. <laughs> um, but I think one of the tips that I have is to start, you know, I usually try to get my book list together um, early mm -hmm. and then knock out my syllabus in one day. And that's usually what I do. I don't let it, you know, teaching expands to right. whatever time we allow for it. So give yourself a deadline. I mean, I think one of the best things about being a dean while writing the Making a Biblical Womanhood and staying active in scholarship was I learned that when you you have two hours to write, you got to do it. Yeah, I have one hour to finish prepping for a lecture. That's all the time I have. Yeah. I'm going to do it within that hour. So you give yourself time limits. And so I think that's really helpful because otherwise the syllabus stuff can like drag on for like weeks at a time. Sure. And, um, and so I think it's just give yourself, like I have six hours to set up my um, Blackboard page or my Canvas page and I'm done. That's it. Mm -hmm. We're starting mm -hmm. class with that. And I think that if you real, I think just being conscious and not allowing yourself to over-prepare. Yeah. I think um, can, you know, it makes it not feel like that great big mountain in your brain all the time. Uh, the other thing is, and this is something I really had to get past, is I tend to drag things on where I'm like, I got to do that. I got to do it. I got to do it. I got to do it. And I'm stressed about it for like weeks before I finally right. do it. Right. <laughs> it's like, you know what? Why don't I just do a little bit today? And then you you're not, you know, and so, and it doesn't take very long mm -hmm. and it cuts down on that stress and it also makes you finish it much faster. Yeah. So that's something that I've definitely been, it's like, instead of when I find myself stressing about something, like I've got to do that. I'm like, okay, I'm going to do it right now mm -hmm. and sit down. And that's actually made a huge difference for me. That's um, great. Is, yeah. So I don't know. Those are a couple of things.